0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. So, this is the site, here. Wow. Mm. So, it's just a... Really it's bare patch grave, yeah. yeah, yeah, with no monument on it. Yeah. Mm. Wow, it's quite stark, isn't it? It just is. It's very stark. Pretty confronting. Very sad. Very sad. Mm. A young mum of two. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I bought some flowers just <laughs> because I imagine it would have been quite a lonely grave. So.
1: Hello, Kirsty Melville here and welcome to the History Listen. Family history is a strange thing. There are parts of it that we think we know, but rarely question or interrogate. Fiona Pepper had always known that her great-grandmother, Isabel, had died when her grandfather, Eric, was just a boy. Her death notice simply said, Isabel died after a brief illness. But as Fiona discovers, It was far, far more complicated. And a warning, this program does have some graphic content.
0: I don't remember my pop Eric talking much at all about his mum, Isabel, my great-grandmother. Although I do remember he always used to call her Belle and he used to say she was a really lovely mum. And he used to tell my sister that she looked just like her tall with brown wavy hair. I knew she'd died when Pop was only little, but I'd never given any thought to how she died. Then one day about a year ago, I was eavesdropping on a conversation between my dad and his two brothers when one of them said, when Belle died after the abortion. Hang on, what? She died after having an abortion? When dad got off the phone, I checked that I'd heard right. Yep. It wasn't some big family secret, it just wasn't something we talked about much. But once I found out, I wanted to know more.
2: The Women's Hospital report the death at that institution of a married woman named Isabel Pepper, aged 36 years, late of Amberley, Lower Plenty.
0: That's the first line from the inquest into my great-grandmother's death.
2: Pepper was admitted to hospital on the 20th of August 1937 at 5am suffering from an abortion and died at 5.15am on the 21st of August 1937. Cause of death, septicemia following an abortion.
0: It's a very different story to the one Isabel told police. On Monday the 18th of August 1937, a miscarriage occurred and everything came away. I did not interfere with myself to bring about a miscarriage, nor did anyone else do so.
3: Yes, well, that's a fairly standard answer from women because they did not want to give away the fact they'd been to an abortionist or who assisted them in any way because they didn't want the police to be involved.
0: In the 1930s, abortion was illegal in Australia. And it stayed that way until the late 1960s. With virtually no access to contraception, women like my great-grandmother secretly tried to terminate unwanted pregnancies.
4: The difficulty for those women was they were in trouble and they needed help. And I really think we can't understand how desperate people were.
0: Desperate is a word I hear again and again as I start looking into Isabel's story.
3: These women are desperate and they don't know anything else to do. That's the sadness of it all. They had no other way out of it that they could see.
0: From looking at the Royal Women's Hospital records, during the 1930s, about 250 women a year presented with septic abortion. That's about five women every week and that's just one hospital. It was the most common cause of maternal death. Behind each of those statistics is a story. So I travelled to Melbourne to try and understand what led up to my great-grandmother's tragic death. I found the perfect oh, yeah, person yeah, to help. Dr Madonna Green. She's a registered no, nurse, coffee. midwife yeah, yeah. and historian. Yeah, okay. And Madonna has examined similar inquests into maternal deaths. I
4: came to understand that inquests were not just instructive from an anatomical perspective, but they also said a lot about how the community was expected to respond to this unexplained death and an incredibly powerful tool for understanding social context, I think.
0: My great-grandmother was born Isabel Creswell in 1901 in Wilcannia in outback New South Wales. She was the youngest of seven children from a prominent family. In December 1923, she married my great-grandfather, Alfred Pepper, in Hay in New South Wales. Six months later, they had their first son, my great-uncle, Keith. Isabel's husband, Alf, was a returned serviceman. He'd fought in World War I, and he was described as shell-shocked, what we now know as PTSD.
4: It's not unusual that someone like that couldn't settle back to life, even though they had a wife. You know, people used alcohol to uh, medicate themselves and someone like him is just quite normal. He's a, He didn't have a particularly good job as far as I could tell. He had it was a labourer, a shearer. Yeah. So it, it, it's inevitable that he's going to be moving on, not making relationships, not settling down.
0: Then three years after they were married, When Isabel was pregnant with her second child, my pop, Alf took off. He completely disappeared, leaving Isabel destitute without any child support. It's fascinating. Back then, it was considered a crime to abandon your family. So Alf's name was listed a number of times in the Deserting Wives and Family column of the New South Wales Police Gazette.
5: Two warrants have been issued by the Hay Bench for the arrest of Alfred Edgar Pepper,
4: you know, the number of men who walked out on women and left them destitute. I mean, (laughs) people just have no idea how difficult it was for women to get on when men deserted them. Because men were traditional breadwinners.
0: Alf was never found. Then a few years after he left, Isabel tried to get a divorce. She wasn't successful, probably because Alf couldn't be tracked down. Going through Alf's records, I find that in 1928, he moves to Sydney, changes his surname from Pepper to Reed, and even though he's not divorced, he remarries. Meanwhile, Isabel makes do. She rents a house in Wagga Wagga with her two little boys and takes in boarders to make a bit of money. Then at last, things start to look up. In 1934, she lands a job as a cook in a grand house in Lower Plenty on the outskirts of Melbourne.
4: God, the relief must have been profound. At last, her children could get shoes and clothes, they'd get an education provided free by the state. Yes, she would have landed on her feet, I imagine, secure for the first time in her life.
0: Amberley House is a huge and beautiful historic home overlooking the Yarra River. It's now used for conferences and school camps. When Isabel starts working there in 1934, it's just been bought by Mr Russell, the founder of Repco, the tyre company. So a very wealthy family, which figures. The house still has the original chandeliers and ballroom, a huge dining hall and even a swimming pool. When I visit Amberley, touring the house and servants' quarters and see what was probably my pop's bedroom, it brings this whole story to life for me. I like to imagine that Amberley House was a place where Isabel and her boys finally had some happiness as a family.
5: My name is George Childs. I'm a gardener residing at Amberley, Lower Plenty.
0: Because it's here that Isabel meets the resident gardener. George Childs, and I think fell in love. So for for him, equally,
4: he might have landed on his feet by meeting someone who was charming and educated and had two lovely children.
0: Isabel and George live together and she starts using the last name Childs, referring to George as her husband. But this only lasts a few short years.
5: On the 21st day of August 1937 at the City Morgue, Melbourne, I identified the body of Isabel Maud Pepper, who resided at Amberley, Lower Plenty, and was aged 36 years. She was, by occupation, a cook, and had lived with me as my wife for about four years.
0: This is a statement George gave before the coroner.
5: Isabel did not at any time tell me that she was pregnant. After having told me that she had fallen down the stairs, she appeared to be suffering from some inner trouble. She told me that she thought she had injured her bladder.
4: So to have all of those sort of pseudo-stories, explanations for internal trouble, bladder infection, just, to me, explains the desperation that that poor woman felt.
5: She would get out of bed during the night and fill the bedroom chamber with boiling water and sit over it. She would also syringe herself out with a weak solution of Lysol and warm water.
0: Dr Leslie Retty is the chair of the History Archives at the Royal Women's Hospital in Melbourne and a former clinical director of gynaecology there. He describes what likely happened. And brace yourself, it's graphic.
6: When women did abortions themselves, it was either the introduction of a sharp object into the vagina and with a hope to put the sharp object through the cervix into the uterus to disrupt pregnancy and cause a miscarriage. That's not that simple because it's easy to put something in the vagina. It's not so easy to get it through the cervical opening. And so it often caused trauma. Another way was to syringe toxic stuff like Lysol hoping that it subsequently goes into the uterus and is toxic to the pregnancy, which is then miscarried.
0: Lysol, a heavy-duty cleaning product, isn't only toxic. Isabel was also using a type of syringe
6: commonly used for enemas. And therefore, it is thought that sometimes it was contaminated, it wasn't washed properly, and that bacteria from the gut was flushed into the vagina and uterus.
5: I asked her to go to a doctor, but she told me that he would tell her that she was sick and that we would lose our employment.
4: You cannot have a baby and work as a domestic in a big house, not in the 1930s.
5: On Tuesday, the 17th day of August, 1937, Isabel left home and stated that she would stay the night at her cousin's place at Elwood. And from inquiries made, I've ascertained that she did not stay with her cousin.
0: Isabel's home methods mustn't have been working she wasn't miscarrying, so she went to see an abortionist.
6: If you were wealthy, you were able to get a specialist gynaecologist who illegally might have done a termination of pregnancy. But the majority of people either had the derogatory term is backyard abortions, whereby a non-medical person with variable skill. Some of them were very skilled because they did lots and some of them were not skilled at all.
5: On the Friday morning at 2.30am, I received a telephone message from a woman who refused to give me her name. She said Mrs Childs has collapsed.
4: They wouldn't have had a phone, so that's probably gone to the big house in the middle of the night. The ignominy of getting a message that way your wife's
5: collapsed. I said, what has happened? She said... We think she has eaten something and I am taking her to hospital. I want you to come in and meet us. I said, where will I meet you? She said, I am waiting in the car with her.
4: (sighs) Now, this is Derebin Road, so there's a car park there. Let's find a
0: laneway. Madonna has driven me to Northcote, the inner-city Melbourne suburb where George was told to meet Isabel
4: day. But you know, the 1930s, dead silent suburb, nothing going on in the middle of the night. There'd be no lighting in these streets. There'd be fires lit, it'd be terribly
0: smoky and eerily quiet. Amberley House is about 15 kilometres away, so it's likely someone drove George and dropped him off in Northcote.
5: In a lane I saw Isabel and another woman who was heavily cloaked.
4: Certainly made an effort to. Disguise who they are.
5: Isabel said, get in the car and get me to hospital quick.
4: She'd have been pale with this awful mask, dusky mask. And let's face it, she's only 24 hours away from death.
0: George, Isabel and the heavily cloaked woman make the 10-minute journey to the women's hospital in Carlton
4: that woman, in all likelihood, drove fast. She needed to get rid of the problem and give it to someone else, and the problem is the fact that this woman is nearly deceased, moribund.
3: I'm Margaret Mavet, and I first came into contact with criminal abortions at the Royal Women's in Melbourne in 1954 as a first-year staff nurse in a gynaecological ward. Women with all sorts of infections ended up there. They might have mastitis, they might have, um, well, a septic abortion. Anything that was needing treatment for an infection ended up in Ward 1.
0: Although Mug began nursing at the women's 20 or so years after Isabel was there, not much had changed in terms of abortion.
3: The women were in impossible situations, had families, that they couldn't afford to keep any more babies. And uh,
0: if they were unmarried, it was, you know, they were desperate. When Isabel and George arrive at the women's hospital at 5am on the Friday morning, Isabel was immediately admitted to the septic ward, Ward 1.
3: Ward 1 was a ward
0: that collected women with lots of problems. Margaret Peters was a trainee at the women's in 1958 and she also worked on Ward 1.
3: When you went to Ward 1, they were sick patients who needed care, a lot of it. And a lot of it was smelly. And the only real good reason I can remember Ward 1 is the smell, the stink. And it did. It was awful. And what was the smell? Gas gangrene. It's rotten flesh, and that's what it was. It might be internal, but it would be seeping per vagina.
6: Clostridia welshiae is the medical term for gas gangrene. Uh, I think most people would know about gas gangrene with regard to uh, wounds in battle, whereby people had to have their legs amputated because it was gangrenous. Now imagine that the same thing can occur inside the uterus. Isabel would have been in
0: agony. And because what she'd done was illegal, the doctors had to notify police. So she'd arrived at the hospital at 5am and by 11am she was being interviewed by Police Constable JJ Green. She must have been terrified. In that interview, she again uses her de facto name, Isabel Childs, and says, I'm a married woman residing with my husband and two children at Amberleet Lower Plenty. On the 2nd of June, 1937, I discovered that I was pregnant. I was prepared to go through with my pregnancy and bear the child. About seven weeks ago, I fell from the second top step of the stairway in my home. About two weeks later, I noticed a discharge and I thought that a miscarriage was about to occur. On Monday, the 18th of August, 1937, a miscarriage occurred, and everything came away.
1: I did not interfere with myself to bring about a miscarriage, nor did anyone else do so.
3: It really was a textbook case.
0: That's midwife Marg Mabbett again.
3: Because she'd been to an abortionist, she didn't tell anybody, and she wouldn't give the name of the woman away, and she really didn't give any indication of the truth and that was normal
0: isabel died the following day at 5:15 a.m. on saturday the 21st of august 1937 the inquest says
2: Her death was due to an abortion followed by septicemia of the gas gangrene type.
0: Isabel's de facto husband, George, was then interviewed by police. He identified her body and then most likely made his way home to break the news to her boys and his boss.
4: Like, instantly there's an issue to explain to two children why their mother's not coming back. And two children can't live in Amberley House without a mother because... Let's face it, he's not their father, and he probably doesn't do much of the caring anyway. But there's such shame, this shame of walking back into your employer's house and saying, you know, my de facto wife, my wife died, she's had an abortion.
0: So, this is the site, here. Wow, it's quite stark, isn't it? It is, it's very stark. Isabel was buried in this unmarked grave in Weringel Cemetery in Heidelberg, not far from Amberley House. And it's here I bring flowers to her grave. Dug almost 90 years ago, but I'm sure has had barely any visitors. My pop, who was 11 at the time, and his brother Keith, who was 13, had lost their mum and their whole world had turned upside down hi jeffrey how are you can i park here when i get back home to western australia i visit eric's son my uncle jeff
7: yeah i'm jeff pepper and uh, i was isabel's grandson who never met her
0: how do you feel about me doing this story
7: oh well a bit emotional but i'm okay Yeah. It's a good thing. You've got to be told. Yeah.
0: So your dad was Eric?
7: Yep, my dad was Eric.
0: Did he ever talk about Isabel or Belle? That's how he referred to her. Is that right?
7: Yeah. Well, he never really talked much about his mother at all. You know, I can just, all I ever really remember is him telling me how he took, you know, she died when he was young and he took flowers to her grave, you know. And that was really, he never said much about it at all. Mm.
0: And another night, I sit down and talk with my dad, John. He's also Eric's son.
2: Oh, uh, yeah, he talked about her. But you know, I think it was probably quite traumatic for him. But he would, you know, he told us what her name was and how she died. Or well, not how she died, but that she had died. We might have known that there was a baby involved. But... You know, he didn't know that she was having an
1: abortion.
0: I also get in touch with my pop's brother's side of the family. Hello, hi Deb. This is Fiona. this is Keith's daughter, Deborah. how are you? Did your dad talk about his mum very often?
3: He just said that that she was a marvelous cook, and she always worked in wealthy homes. That she was a marvellous woman and he always talked about what she did as being a chef or a cook.
0: Did your dad ever talk about then her death, what that meant and where the boys ended up? He just said
3: um, we just went from one family to another family and they never stayed long. That's what made him angry. He felt that nobody wanted him.
0: While I was researching this story, I came across a Pepper family history book that my nan put together before she died. Nan explained how after Isabel died, Pop and my great-uncle Keith ended up living with their Aunt Anne. That was until Aunt Anne tracked down her long-lost brother, Alf. Now, remember, he'd changed his name from Pepper to Reed, and by now he'd moved to WA. Anne told Alf he had to take responsibility for his sons. And so a couple of years after Isabel died, Alf and his second wife arrived in Melbourne to collect the boys. And that was the first time my 13-year-old Pop met his dad. Things didn't start well. One day, Alf told Pop he couldn't go out on his bike, but Pop did anyway. So Alf took his bike and threw it off the end of the jetty. Nan adds, an odd thing for a father to do to a son he's just met. He's Dad again.
2: And then the old man had stories of when he came to WA, he went to 14 different schools in a year. and Because his old man, Elf, was a um, ball classer. And so he just moved from town to town with the shearing team, classing more.
0: When Pop was 16, he lied about his age and joined the army. While he was serving during the war, his wages were sent to Alf to deposit into Pop's savings account. But when Pop came home and asked for the money...
2: Alf said, oh, we've spent that, son. We did the house up with the money that you were sending back.
0: Pop eventually cuts ties with his dad, Alf. By this point, he had a family of his own. My uncle Jeff says Pop was always a serious man. Serious, but generous too.
7: He was a hard man, mm. but, you know, he was basically kind of a good father. So he, he did a pretty damn good job for a bloke that came from where he came from. Yeah, it was just incredibly tragic. Isabel was had a job where her kids were maintained and then... You know, whammy, all of a sudden you're pregnant again. And let's face it, it all revolved around the illegality of abortion that created her death and then a tragic situation for both of her sons trying to navigate their way through life.
0: And as Deb, Keith's daughter, explains, they also struggled to come to terms with the true cause of Isabel's death. Dad said
3: quite clearly that she died in childbirth and my mother ended up telling me she'd had an abortion and that it was a botched abortion and that's why she died. And I never really said anything to dad about it. I just thought that's the
0: saddest thing I've ever heard. The real tragedy here is that my great-grandmother Isabel's story is equally as extraordinary as it is ordinary because thousands of women died in similar circumstances. When
3: you've seen women die needlessly when they could have had proper treatment.
0: It's that experience of working on the septic ward that stayed with midwife Marg Mabbitt.
3: I've always said the only time I'd walk down Monson Street in a protest would be if somebody tried to do away with legalised abortion. What really irritates me, most of the people who are against abortion are men and they really have no idea what they're talking about. No idea how women
0: died. Before making this program, I had no idea how my great-grandmother died. I keep coming back to her death notice Isabel Maud Pepper died after a brief illness. It isn't entirely wrong. But what it doesn't say is that a mother died a completely avoidable death. A death that's been felt through multiple generations. What if, back in 1937, Isabel had access to a safe abortion? Had continued her relationship with George... And my pop and his brother had a loving upbringing. Maybe Isabel might have even lived long enough for me to have known her.
1: And that was the unspoken story of Isabel Pepper, produced by her great granddaughter, Fiona Pepper. The sound engineer was Angie Grant. And you've been listening to the History listen with me, Kirsty Melville.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC listen app.